Good morning. How you doing? How's your weekend? Uh-huh. All right. Hey, welcome to Portico Church, Arlington. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Jason, and like Pastor Reeve said, man, we're just so glad you're here. Um, whether you're just checking us out or you've been here with us from the very beginning, you have a place here to worship God. You have a place here to learn what that means. If you're like, I don't even know what that means. I'm not a believer. Um, education happens in community. So my encouragement to you today is that God has something for us. He reveals himself through his word. So that's why we sing it. That's why we preach it. That's why we eat it and drink it. Um, And this is why we gather together as his people. So we're going to be in Revelation. We've been in a series walking through what it means to be not just a church, but the church of Jesus. The fact that he he owns us, right? He, we belong to him. We are his people. Um, he deserves our worship. So we're understanding what it means that we as a church um, belong to him. So specifically, we want his eyes and his evaluation on us as we prepare for the next decade of our church. Uh, so we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, so you can put your, your thumb there. And as we prepare, um, I just want to let you know that um, one of the things we do every year is we send a team to India, because we have a church in, in Hyderabad, India, that we love. Pastor Sudhakar um, is one of my best friends. I've learned more from that pastor in my friendship with him than anything else, and we're not going this year. Our team has been suspended. We're not going. And it's because they said don't come. Um, Here's the reason why. Here's what you need to know. Um, There's just a lot of intense persecution over there for the church. And for our safety, they just put us on pause. Now, we're still going to raise funds. They're still doing Christmas camp. But we are not going to go. Under Modi's administration, there were some raids that were coordinated about six weeks ago and a lot of even NGOs and ministry operations, they were just sent home and banned. You cannot come back here. So Bethel Gospel Church said, we don't want that for you. Let's get this worked out. And so I wanted you to know that. But that's normal for them. Um, one, of the things that, one of the things that I was so impressed with Pastor Sudakar, my relationship with him, is he just doesn't have fear. And I want that so bad. I want that so bad. And I don't know how he does it. Um, he was beaten in 2007. He was, um, because he's a Christian and because he loves Jesus, and he was imprisoned for that, and they charged him with disturbing the peace, and they also, he got out like in three days through bail, but he had a three-year trial, three years over his head, a trial whereby he came under charges, and one of those charges was he was insulting local gods. Now, we're Western Christians, so we're like, ha, 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 doesn't that seem so backwards? Push pause on that for a minute. Anytime your gods are attacked, you will have an emotional response that is way beyond normal. Because when it comes to spiritual idolatry or little g gods, these are the things that bring us happiness, the things that we need to have in our lives, regardless of what God says, to give our lives meaning, to give them peace, to give them security, to establish our happiness. So in India, a lot of times those are local gods. They believe that, no, you can't, you can't distract from that because we require their protection. Same thing. It's, it's our happiness is in jeopardy. 
So he went through this three-year trial at the very end, and he just didn't care. I mean, he cared, right? But he told me, like, hey, if this is what God wants for my life, you know what? To die is a gain. And he's like, maybe I'm just, God's going to put me in jail so that I can lead some people to Christ. I'm like, I don't know, man. I, yes. <laughs> yes. I'm learning from you, Pastor. When the trial, when the trial came to the final day, um, his accusers backed off and said these were false allegations. He never did it. And they actually had come to Christ, and they let him know afterwards. And then they had a service disrupted in 2009, beaten again. This is, it's just normal. It's just normal. So one of the things that we see in persecution, one of the things we see in Revelation, is that there is a cost to following Jesus. If you are going to hold to the name of Christ, you are going to lose access. You could lose social access. You could lose financial access. You're going to lose personally. And that's one of the things that we've talked about, one of the things that Jesus has told us as we've walked through Revelation. And honestly, listen, just, let's just be honest for a minute. Making choices that contradict God's word in certain areas of our life is just easier. It gives us a, a false freedom. It feels better. There's less conflict. I don't have to lose socially. I just don't. Um, that's where we're going to go today. Last week, we were in Smyrna, and Jesus' encouragement to them was, you know what? Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Step up into trembling courage. There was external persecution. Today, it's backwards. This church in uh, Pergamum, they're good at the external faith. Oh, yeah, they'll hold to the name of Jesus, but there's stuff going on in their church that's coming in from culture that's draining the life out of the church. It's an internal destruction that's happening, and Jesus speaks to that. So let's go there. Revelation 2, um, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. This is the church in Pergamum. And Jesus says to them, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. Where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you. I even now just lift up Bethel Gospel Church. Our hearts and our lives are intertwined with this church. Would you give them peace? Would you give them security? Would you give them reprieve? And would you make them magnificent, Lord? Would you let them shine 
as they hold fast to your name, that thousands more will come to know you. Lord, we need to understand this text. It is impossible because it's your word, not ours. So would you open up your treasure that way we might behold its beauty and forever be changed. In the name of Jesus, amen. So this is Revelation. It's strange. However, the key to understanding Revelation is very easy. It's always the Old Testament. So John the writer, the apostle, the one that Jesus loved, um, as he's writing it, Basically, what's happening is God has pulled back or torn open uh, the, the veil between reality and the spiritual world, between the physical and the spiritual, and he's shown John some things that are present realities also that will be realities into the future. And the way that John writes it is he uses apocalyptic language or this language that is re- revealed simply by understanding the Old Testament. So a lot of these names that you see or things that he says to understand them, we simply have to go, as he would expect his readers to, right back to the Old Testament so that we can understand them. So we'll have to do a little bit of that today. Now, Pergamum is a church. It's the further, the most north church that Jesus speaks to. It's in Asia. It's about 35, maybe 40 miles north of Smyrna and inland off the Aegean coast. Here's what's interesting about Pergamum and that we need to know. Because Jesus says, remember, he introduces himself. And however Jesus introduces himself to the church um, has something to do with the message he's going to give them and the salvation he's going to bring them. So he announces himself as the one who stands with a two-edged sword. So that's two things for the church in Pergamum. One is it's... It's comfort because Pergamum was the Roman capital in Asia. So they they were the power center. They were also the education center. They had the biggest library um, this side of Alexandria in Egypt. So they had like huge, huge mini volumes. Um, They were the health center. This is where medicine um, was, was really kind of developed in the empire. At that time, they were very wealthy and they loved power. So this is Pergamum. This is who they are. Does that sound familiar to you? Health, wealth, power, education. This, these are the idols that they held on to and they had patron gods that they would worship. So when he says, I am Jesus, and well, let me just read what he says the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Because Pergamum was the Asian capital for Rome, they held the sword. They could put you to death. They had capital punishment. Jesus is giving both comfort to the Pergamum church by saying, no, no, I hold it. And secondly, it's judgment. You can't miss this. Um, What is the sword? It's the word of God, right? Hebrews 4.12, living, active, double-edged sword, separate um, soul from spirit, joint from marrow. Like, we, we understand that. The word of God moves in us. So it's both. It's both. But let's, what does he say to them? So there's three things he always says in every one of these letters to these churches. First, he commends them. Secondly, he confronts them. And then he calls them to conquer, not in their own power, but he shows them how to conquer in the environment that they're in. Uh, so let's start there first. How does Jesus commend the church in Pergamum. He says this, I know where you live. Now, that never sounds good to me. If somebody said that to me, I'm going to be like, excuse me, why do you need to know that? But Jesus says, I know that you live. This is a little bit like when he talks to the church in Smyrna and says, I know what you're suffering. 
I know what you've given up for me. So he says, I know where you live. I know where you dwell. He understands what it's like for them to live, as he says, under the shadow of Satan's throne. Uh, The idea here is the closer you are to the center of power, and in Revelation, the beast is basically the government that is aligned against God's church and executes judgment on them, but Jesus ultimately judges that will judge Rome or judge the beast. So he's like, hey, I, I know you live where Satan's throne is. Where you live, your locality has spiritual implications. It does. And we are like Pergamum. I'm just going to tell you that right now. There's an intensity. I mean, there's an intensity to life up here anyway. But if you are going to hold fast to the name of Jesus, if you're going to hold fast to his faith, or walk in his faith, um, you're going to lose. You're going to lose socially. You're going to lose financially. There's going to be things that you're going to lose. So he knows that. I know where you live. This is good for them. And he also gives them encouragement. Now, last time when we, we met, it was, hey, you know what? You need to be prepared to suffer. He's kind of encouraging the Smyrna church. He doesn't say that to them. He says, no, I know that you hold fast to my name. In fact, in the days of Antipas, who is he? I don't know. So there's not a lot of information on him, but we do know this. He called the Smyrna church to be faithful unto death. Well, the church in Pergamum does it. They're an example of this. And he calls out Antipas and says, no, he was faithful unto death. So he encourages this church. You have paid the cost. And there's a play on names here because Names give you access, honestly. And listen to what he says. Um, you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Have you ever heard that term, faithful witness? Revelation starts out with this. These are the, this is the revelation of the words of Jesus, the faithful witness. See what Jesus does here for a minute. This is very personal. Jesus unites his name with a personal name, Antipas. Note that. Note that. We understand that faith is uniting ourselves to life in Christ. We understand that when we have faith in Jesus, it's not just that we're believing something. We are uniting ourselves to him personally. Jesus unites his name to Antipas, right? He, which basically in the Greek means against all, right? He stood against all, even unto losing his life. Against all. Um, If we're going to understand this, we have to understand that names give you a few things. They give you an identity based on character. For instance, if I said, um, has anybody ever told you Jason is great at basketball? He's basically like LeBron. You never said that? I'm really good. It's weird. I'm not. I'm awful. I can't even dribble the ball. But if they said, yeah, that's like a LeBron move, you instantly know what that means. Instantly. Because LeBron has performance, he's got character, like you want him on your team. So names carry that. There's an identity based in performance, in character. There's a destiny. You expect them to finish. Um, Yeah, and so you you know that if you say that name, it's going to mean something. It's going to give you access. For instance, have you ever gotten a job because you knew somebody? Yes, you have, right? Everybody has. Um, If you haven't, try it. It's great. Um, (laughs) 
It'll get you places. Names get you access. Sometimes you get a job somewhere. My first job was on the name of my neighbor. I got a job at 7-Up Bottling Company. And it, I was nobody. I was in high school. But because of my neighbor had a good track record, good character, he put his name on me. And then it got me the job. This is, it gives you access. So keep that understanding as we understand where the text goes. So what is this holding fast? What is this holding fast? You see sometimes when the floodwaters come up and you're watching the news and the helicopter comes, the host guard, and they, they let down the rescue team and there's somebody like holding onto a car or holding to a stump. They're holding fast. In many ways, this is what Jesus is talking about. This is how faith works. The cost of holding fast is it's hard and it's painful and it's work. If you don't hold fast, you're swept away. You're gone. That's the idea. You're moving down. You're going with the river. You're moving with culture. We like to think, here's what Jesus says Here's what culture says. We kind of hold the two and move back and forth as needed in my life. It never works that way. Swept away, letting go, because we want a false freedom. So listen to this. When you're holding on to God's word, when you're holding fast to Jesus, it gives you access to two things. One is victory. Well, whose victory? His. Well, I want a victory. You'll get it. So when we choose to hold on or hold fast to the name of Jesus, it will give us a victory that we experience and it will also give us or help us to experience full life, fulfilled life, the fullness of life, which is called eternal life in the Bible that everybody wants. Everybody wants happiness and meaning and significance. And you're on a mission to get it one way or another. And many times the word of God interrupts that I'm like, well, if I do this, Jesus, that's going to rip happiness out of my hands. I've heard that from people. I've probably set up myself in ways. So understand that. We're holding fast um, to God's word. It's going to be a cost, but it gives us access to his victory, to fullness of life. So there's commendation to this church. Man, we have people in this church, too. They have and do and hold fast to the name of Jesus in ways that are just, they encourage me. I've seen it. I've seen you lose because of it. I've seen you lose friends. but I've seen people lose jobs because of it. And I've seen the Lord of God, Lord, work through their lives to bring people to Christ in that faith. Commended. Secondly, confront. Jesus comes at them. Now, he gives an account out of the Old Testament. He says, some of you are holding to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to deceive Israel in two ways. Food offered to idols and also sexual immorality. So this is out of Numbers 22 through 26, and it kind of finishes up in Numbers 31. You can go and read it. But if you remember this, it has the famous part of the story is the donkey that talks, okay? So it's that one. But essentially, um, the king of Moab, Balak, remember Moab? Remember Ruth was from Moab, and we were trying to figure out why Israel wouldn't want a Moabite in their country? Well, Moab got scared of Israel when they came out of Egypt because they were huge and they were gaining an influence. And Moab said, we've got to do something about that. We've got to shut them down. And they hired this prophet, reportedly, his name was Balaam. And they said, you need to curse them. 
We're going to pay you, give you whatever you want. Shut them down. They're too big. We can't compete with them. And God intervened and wouldn't let Balaam curse Israel, but actually turned it into a blessing. So that's funny. But the idea is this. The external pressure, they didn't fold on it. It was the internal pressure. Because here's what happened. Balaam ends up, the prophet ends up telling Midian, which is basically politically connected to Moab, advising them, just go get their men. Bring them to your women and bring them to your parties. And they did. And it worked. And it worked. And the numbers is very clear. They were, they were having sex with the Midianites. They were joining them in their worship feasts. I mean... Hold on a second. Manna in the desert? Or can we go have some fun? Honestly, think about that for a minute. Manna? For how long? Or, I mean, I know it's a worship feast for one of their gods, but like, we're not going to deny Yahweh. So they engaged in it and caused internal division and caused death. So this is, this is the teaching that somehow Pergamum is holding onto. How does that work out? Well, remember, um, the imperial cult and the Roman pagan cult was very intense, especially in Pergamum, especially at this time. If you were going to have social capital, you would show up at the guild feasts, depending on what career you're in. Um, and then especially in spring, you had better show up to the feast that honored the Caesar and honored Rome as a nation. And during these feasts and during these guild feasts, you would be eating food that was offered up right here, right now in worship of the patron deity, maybe that oversaw your guild or maybe of Zeus or Dionysus or Athena, the local the local temple gods. You would do that. Or you would offer incense and sacrifice to Caesar. And some in the church were doing this and saying, well, you know, we really don't mean it. And part of that was temple prostitution. And that was an expected practice. And some in the church were taking advantage of that and saying, well, we're still Christians. It's just a thing we do because we live here and we have to take you know, if we don't do this, it's going to kill our happiness. And it wasn't really necessarily about self. Uh, the Nicolaitans would teach basically like, hey, don't deny the community. We love Rome. It's good. We know you're supposed to be good and all, but if we don't offer to these gods, if we don't show up at these feasts, we're going to be suspect. Not only that, they're going to blame us for bringing judgment upon them. Don't deny the community. Don't deny Rome. Don't deny your guild. Get yourself there. You might have a little fun. You might just find yourself having a little fun, by the way. So it's a stumbling block. It's darkness. What does that mean? Well, um, we bought a bed when we moved in the spring, and it's made out of metal. And the front of the bed curves out, and I almost can't walk anymore because once a week in the middle of the night, I'll get up and walk past it at full speed and smash my toe. You'd think, right? I don't see it coming, and it creates a violence to me. <laughs> it does. Can we get rid of it, please? 
stumbling block. You don't see, what were they saying? You know what? I'll just be honest with you. I don't see why it matters. I don't see why sexual fidelity is that big of a deal if I show up on Sunday. That was their deception. What's our deception? It was ripping the church apart. How does that deceive us? Your sincere desires, your honest desires, and your experiences in life in sex and in what makes you happy, honestly, are more plausible to you than God's word. Let me say that again. Here's our deception. Here's how that works out in our church. We don't care so much about the temple cult, do we? We're the cult. It's me, right? My sexual experience is about me. It's about me expressing myself. It's about my happiness. This is what culture has discipled us in. And so the logic goes like this. Hey, listen, your desires, what you authentically want, and join that with your experiences, are more plausible than some ancient text. It doesn't apply to us. Don't deny self. Express yourself in the way that makes you happy sexually. If you don't, your happiness is in jeopardy. This, this is the deception that we, we buy into. So what is sexual morality? Well, immorality, as the text says, it's porneia. That's the word. It's used here. It's used in Colossians. It's used in um, Corinthians and a couple of different places. Now, he's specifically probably talking about these feasts where there's cult prostitution and worship of other gods. But the word in the greater way, as you, as you track it through Scripture, is it's all sex that's outside the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. And we look at Genesis 2.24, it's the same language. Leave your family, hold fast, same covenant language, to your wife, and the two became one flesh, and they were unashamed, and they were naked. This idea that sex is good, it's great, it's a wonderful thing, it's an, it's an intense appetite that we all have, but God gives it to us as a celebration of the covenant of marriage. He does. But we've, we've never used it that way. The, the deception that we have is it's really about me and getting what I need. Please don't tell me who to have sex with, pastor. This is an old, old problem. So, so how does that, how would that apply to our church? Sex before marriage. Multiple partners in marriage. It's very common. Adultery. Pornography. The kind of media we look at. Um, Self-sex. Same-sex attraction. All of it. Who's this, pointing, who's this really pointing at? You and me. There is nobody in this church that does not struggle with this. Nobody. This picks on nobody. This is a blanket for all of us. And the struggle is, it's really hard for me to believe that that's going to make me happy. Hey, I'm single. You're married, so like you can get up there and say this. Listen, the brokenness that we experience many times is greatest in sex. It just is. And our desires are unreliable. We know that Scripture tells us this. And everyone falls here. 
everyone. Let me, let me show you the fruit of our deception. It's the fruit of our culture. Your sex is about you. Constant scandals from Hollywood to right there, D.C. Well, what about the church? Well, I think we're almost the worst. Child abuse scandals all the time. Pornography use. Average kid sees pornography at 11. By 14, 95% of kids see it. Complete objectification of women in our culture. We sell everything with bodies. We're, we're just, it's in our air. We breathe it. We expect it. And we've been taught, if you're going to be happy, you have got to be able to have the freedom to have sex with whoever you're most attracted to, period. Even if you're married, it's unrealistic that I could ever just have sex with one person. One in five women will be raped. Are you hearing me? This is the fruit of our culture. So what, what do we mean by this? What is Jesus saying to us? I'll tell you what he's saying to us and to me. Portico Church, if how you think of sex and how you practice sex looks like your surrounding culture, you're not hearing me. You're not taking my word seriously. Right? See the sword. Right? The sword is, is two things. It can lovingly separate us from death. Right? Or that blindness can be just complete, utter darkness. Like, the worst part of God's wrath is, all right, go get it. Do what you want. Live how you want. I won't restrain you. Disturbing data. So Jesus confronts, man, I'm telling you, I had to read this all week. It ain't fun, but we've got to hear it. Conquer. So what does this mean? So he says, repent. Friends, this is your access to victory. Right? Holding on to God's word gives access to victory. Here it is, in fullness of life. Um, we can't practice sexual sin and expect to be in relationship with a holy God. And it's like, well, God, does, does he really care? It ends up being treachery. It's like he always accounts it in the Old Testament to a relationship. Um, you can, in other words, you can't either have, be in a marriage and have sex with whoever you want. I hope not. It's going to create violence to your marriage. Um, so when we go outside of God's word, it does the same thing. Things. And so his words are a grace for us, just like a knife. It can perform a surgery that is life-giving to us when we hold fast to God's word, or it can damage, right? Um, so what is this repentance? We say this a lot, but we don't explain it. I'm going to explain it in, in just very clear detail to you. First of all, when it comes to repentance, whether it's sexual sin or anything else, repentance is not feeling bad enough about your sin to where God knows you're serious. It just isn't. And a lot of us are miserable. We think if we're miserable, we're repenting. Um, repentance isn't your work that you do, whereby God says, okay, now you know, right? You've done enough work. You succeeded enough. Now I love you. And now I'm going to put my grace on you. Absolutely not. And I know that most of us think that because we're miserable, so repentance is this. It's a response to God's work of grace, his love for you, right? It's your response to what he's done for you. He has accomplished 
victory for you. He has taken on sin and death. He has walked in righteousness. And he says, let me walk you through this. Let me take on the punishment of your sin. And let me walk you into eternity. That is repentance. All right? So how do we do it? First, you abandon sin. Um, What's that? Other gods. Well, what do you really mean by that? Think of authority. Does God's word have enough weight in your life where you'll do it even if it means losing your happiness? What? I thought God wanted me to be happy. He does. That's why he's doing it. You got to trust him on this. Does God's word have enough weight in your life that you would say, okay, I'm going to stop having sex with um, my girlfriend even though I think that's stupid? Because apparently we're not married and that's a sin. First of all, begrudging submission never works. But does, does the word have that kind of weight in your life? That's the first. Abandon sin. In other words, your love for God makes you leave sin. It just does. It's, it's always an other lover. Do you love self so much that I need to get what I need to get? No. Abandon sin. Now, there's more to the story. We always leave it right there. Secondly, embrace Jesus. This is the grace. Um, a lot of times, this is how repentance works in a church. I hide my sin. I hide my sin, and I manage it so nobody sees it. That's repentance, right? No, that's not repentance. That's awful. Well, I don't want anybody to see my sin. Well, I don't want to see my sin either. We've got that in common. No, repentance isn't managing your sin and hiding it. This is why we have community groups. This is why we have membership. We work this out together. So what is embracing Jesus? Well, let me just read to you Hebrews 8.12. I wish you would believe this. He's explaining the new covenant, and he says this is how it ends. I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. You're embracing Jesus. You're embracing his love and his work on your behalf. He's like, I'm done with it. Are you done with it? But I sinned. Okay. Ask for forgiveness. It's relational between you and God. He extends it to you over and over and over. There's no chance of rejection. That's how covenants work. Um, have you ever gone to an airport and you're going to get on a plane and you're going through security and it's like, you know, like this and that, and, and you're getting up there and you're like, I feel like I'm going to get caught. Like, you know you didn't bring anything. You don't have any grenades on your belt or anything, but you're stepping there and the guy waves you through and you're like, oh no, I'm going to jail. You do the same thing with Jesus every time. You, you're like, I guess I'm going to embrace Jesus, and I'm going to go over here for a minute first, though. The closer I get to him, the more I feel my guilt, the less I believe grace, and I don't want to walk through the metal detector because, hey, man, God and I both know I'm going to be called out. No, no. Jesus has the grenades. He takes them from you. He goes to the basement. He suffers the wrath of your sin. You go right through in his righteousness. That's how it works. So we embrace that. We embrace Jesus. Yes, we ask for forgiveness. And yes, we seek restitution between those people that we've sinned or that we've sinned against. And lastly, repentance is this. You walk in victory, man. You got to start taking some victory laps. So abandon sin. 
Let God speak. Embrace Jesus. It's his work, not yours. And now walk in victory. That's when, this is the hard part. Well, they're all hard parts. That's when your convictions become actions. Right? The name that got me hired, I had to learn how to put on a 7-Up uniform and load trucks. And if I just sat in the office, it wouldn't work. I had to learn how to walk in the clothes that he had given me. So walking in victory is learning how to walk in the righteousness that Jesus gives you for free grace. And it happens with others because I'll tell you something that sin does. It isolates you. It's all about shame. Sin will isolate you. You will not walk this out. You're afraid of failure. You will not let people help you. You will not let God help you. And you will keep it in the dark and you will stay isolated. And that shame will build up on you. And where will you go? You go right back to your sin. It's, 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 it's famous because that's where you're getting your peace. So walking in victory, repenting. And the last part of conquering is so good. It's receiving. It's the fullness of life. And you're holding on to the word of God, fullness of life. Psalm 1611. In your presence is joy. Right? You show me. Well, it starts out, actually, you show me the path of life. In your presence is, is fullness of joy. And from your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is where your happiness is. And we receive this. Jesus says, I'm going to give you some hidden manna. What is that all about? Remember the manna in the desert? Desert's not fun. We're resident aliens, kingdom of God, but in many ways our lives are like living in a desert of need and want and desire. He's like, okay, hidden manna. We hid some of that in the covenant, in the Ark of the Covenant to remind Israel, I was always there. Jesus gives you provision and grace right now right now. He's with you. Secondly, he gives you a white stone with a new name. What is that? It sounds like something out of the souvenir shop, doesn't it? Understand the context. If you've won a state-sponsored game in Rome, you were given a white stone sometimes. They gave you access to all the good parties. It's access. He's giving you white holiness. You, you have access to his holiness, access to his presence, access to eternal life. Do not worry about or don't frustrate yourself over what you have lost. He's given you the white stone with a new name. A new name. What is that name that nobody knows? Well, nobody actually knows. But here's my guess. You're going to receive a name that shows how the resurrected Lord and your trust in him worked out in your life. And it's going to make perfect sense. The things you struggled with, the things you had to die to. Maybe it's not antipas against all. Maybe it's for all. You are so merciful and loving. However, faith in Jesus, however your union with the living Lord worked out in your life, I feel like that's going to be represented in your access. And the, the new name of the risen Lord. You have him. You have him. To hold to God's word, this is your access to victory. This is your access to fullness of life. Friends, this is us. I'm just going to tell you right now. We move forward in the next decade. We have to be serious about this. We have to let the sword of Jesus separate us from sexual sin. He's, he's always loving. You can trust him. You can trust him. Um, don't deny him. Hold fast his name. 
hold fast his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Um, this is such a hard subject, Jesus. This is so difficult, and I honestly don't even know why. But I feel it. And so I pray, Lord, for those who have been hurt by sex. You know their brokenness, Lord Jesus. You promised to put together the pieces of their lives. Lord, I pray for those who are ensnared in sin. Give them the hope they need to trust you yet again. Lord Jesus, I pray those who are, are struggling with any version of this. Meet us here, God. Meet us here. Lift us up in the name of Jesus. Amen.